Hey there, Vernacular Faithful. Redcoat here. And Stancher joins him. Today, we're continuing the podcast set on competitive environments. Specifically, we'll be looking at the elements that go into altering your competitive environment to facilitate the type of play you want, as well as the aspects involved in managing the experience of your competitors. So, we're going to first delve into tweaking competitive environments. Part of this process does rely on receiving feedback from players, as they're going to be an important part of the tweaking cycle, though we'll get into details of doing that later. Before you can even begin taking player feedback into consideration, there are a few other things you have to know and look at. Among the first things you'll need to consider is the current shape of your environment, and what kind of environment you wanted to make. This is something that can be examined even before the game reaches the players, as when you set out to make a game, you have a core intention for the gameplay that you are building towards. One of the simplest ways to test the shape of your environment is to do internal play tests with your game. In this way, you can get an idea of how it plays. It should be noted that these internal tests need to be done with an eye towards the ways players may try to play the game. Utilizing player psychographics such as the Timmy, Johnny, and Spike that appear in Magic to look at different player motivations can help you in this endeavor. You can do this by utilizing different players to test the title while keeping track of their general motivations during play, either through questionnaires or just close observation. This of course won't cover all of your bases, but it can help greatly when looking for play elements that either contradict the intention of your title or need to be recontextualized to be a part of that core intention. Along with this concept of internal playtesting is the concept of external playtesting, where you bring in players unfamiliar with the intention of your game's design. Because they don't know how you intended your game to be played, they will be more indicative of how the populace at large may approach various elements of your title. A great example of this comes from one of Magic the Gathering's unsets with the gotcha mechanic. Essentially, when a player said a certain word or phrase that was printed on a card, the player who owned that card could say, gotcha, which would cause the card to return from the graveyard to their hand. The intent was to make a fun experience, where players, talking as they play the game, would have a laugh or two when the phrases appeared in their speech, possibly finding ways to alter what they were saying to avoid these phrases as they play. In actual play, with players that were not members of the dev team, however, it resulted in players going silent during play, and not talking at all for fear of speaking one of the gotcha abilities' trigger phrases. In this case, the resultant play amongst the player base differed greatly from the predicted play, and resulted in a negative play experience overall. This in mind, it is very important to find ways to test against a broad spectrum of players, as many of them will have very different ideas about how your game could and should be played than you do. You'll also need to know what things you actually can change and tweak. This can be on a sort of hierarchy, with some things being easy to change, some a little more difficult to change, etc., all the way up to impossible to change. The reasons for various items to fall into these different tiers can vary. Perhaps engine or other code structural reasons get in the way. Perhaps design considerations prevent the change. For example, you might be unable to change something because the engine support isn't there, or perhaps the change would be so drastic from a design standpoint that you'd in effect be creating an entirely new game. So to recap this, the first thing is knowing what things you can tweak, how hard those tweaks are to make, and what sort of changes you'd want to try first. Once you know what kind of tweaks you can make, you'll have to consider what kinds of effects will result from that tweakage. There are numerous ways to approach this aspect. 
The first would be to take a look at other games that possess similar qualities to your own and observe how their balance tweaks lead to the play environments that they have. By comparing these existing environments to the theoretical one you intend to build, you can come up with the types of tweaks and changes you will need to make to either produce or avoid elements of those existing play environments. The second method is playtesting. As by having other players play your game, you can gain a better grasp of the overall feel of your game and the tweaks that need to be made to lean it towards a type of play environment that you want to have. By using the information you gained by looking at other play environments to make an educated guess as to how your change will affect your play environment, you'll be better equipped to respond to the change's actual effects. As the knowledge of whether your prediction was correct, as well as how close to correct you were, gives you a better understanding of how much you really know about your environment. In this case, it is very important to be able to accept the fact that, even though you created the environment, you may not have as good a grasp of how it works as you think you do. Always keep an eye out for incongruencies in what you think should happen and what is actually happening. You definitely need to be humble when it comes to your own ideas of your player environment. As Redcoat implied, this is really important when it comes to your understanding of your environment, but it also applies to your vision for your environment. It is important to recognize that you are not the sole owner of your environment. It also belongs to the players. At the same time, as the developer, you have near total control over it. Therefore, in order to create the best environment for your players, you have to be willing to relinquish some portion of your creative vision to compromise with your players. This can be very hard to do, especially if ego is wrapped up in your vision. Of course, sometimes you do need to stick to your vision. Perhaps the players are demanding you make your game into something entirely different. It is especially important in times like these to have transparency with your intentions. This doesn't mean you have to reveal everything, but you should explain why you are or aren't making changes to a game, and you should endeavor to do so in a way that isn't condescending. Something that is also very important to this is to not let extremely loud minority voices cloud your judgment. It is important to augment player voices with data. You shouldn't change your vision to match the vision of only a tiny number of players if that change will ruin the experience for a large majority. Remember, you're making this game for all of your players, not just a few. Balancing all of the voices, yours, your teams, and those of your various player groups will be challenging, but approaching it with humility, not deference, those are different things, and a willingness to listen will help you greatly when it comes to navigating those treacherous waters. All of what has been said so far works towards answering the question of, do you know your play environment? Seeking the answer to this question and being honest about the answer you find is essential to being able to properly and deliberately tweak your environment towards a type of play that you want in your game. So with the understanding that a knowledge of your play environment is essential to being able to successfully tweak it towards the type of play you want out of your game, we come to one of the extremely important parts of managing a competitive environment that your game creates. So with the understanding that a knowledge of your play environment is essential to being able to successfully tweak it towards the type of play you want out of your game, we come to one of the extremely important parts of managing the competitive environment that your game creates, understanding and managing the player base for your game. To do this, you must first be able to hear what your players think and know about your game. In other words, you need to find ways to enable them to grant you feedback on your game. This can come in the form of building forums online, hosting tournaments and other events, or just paying attention to player chatter online about your title in the various forms of social media. 
The idea is to facilitate and be aware of conversations about your title, either between yourself and the players, or between the players of the game themselves. Most player feedback will take the form of complaints. These complaints must be understood through the lens of who that player is. Sometimes you won't have enough data to make a complete lens, but each player can at least add something to your overall picture of the state of your game. Let me explain what I mean with a simplistic example. Suppose we take a competitive game with a handful of different classes. If you see a player complain that one of those classes is too weak, then there are a few things you need to know to understand that feedback. The most immediate one is whether or not the player plays using that class. If the player doesn't play using that class, then your understanding of that feedback is very different than if the player does play that class. In general, players are going to view the game pieces they play with as weaker than pieces their opponents play with, particularly when skill differentials exist. And skill level is another important piece of information to consider. Looking at your data is also very helpful. In effect, the things you are looking for are, how complete of a picture does this player have of the game environment? If the player is complaining about a piece of the game and that player has no experience with anything else in the game, then their complaint must be viewed through that lens. In other words, the more of the game environment that the complaining player has experience with, the more accurate their feedback is likely to be, though there is no guarantee of that. How skilled is the player? You need to take this into consideration, if possible, for a few different reasons. If player skill levels are being mixed, then feedback about things being too strong or too weak are interpreted differently. If a highly skilled player complains about low-skilled players defeating them too consistently with a specific class, then that class may indeed be overall too powerful. Conversely, skill differentials can make even weak things seem strong to the lower-skilled player. This is important to keep in mind. Different skill levels will naturally develop different environments. That is, things that are strong in one skill level environment may be weak in another, or vice versa. This is normal and pretty much a nightmare to balance because each skill level effectively needs different balancing, which is usually unrealistic to do for many reasons. What does the data say? Recording metrics, if at all possible, is incredibly important because it can help to paint a fuller, more accurate picture because data is not biased. However, it is important to have the tools necessary to interpret that data in a meaningful and accurate way or it is useless. Another important question to ask is, what vision of the game does this player appear to have in mind? Oftentimes, complaints can be leveled at a game because the complainer has a different vision for the game than the current execution. It is important to be able to identify vision complaints from balance complaints, keeping in mind that balance is a subjective thing that is part of the vision. In this instance, I'm meaning it to mean complaints that the environment doesn't match the vision. You also want to see how the complaint, or feedback in general, fits into the broader picture. There will be a lot of voices. You need to figure out if a complaint is part of a chorus or an outlier. Both are meaningful. Transparency is helpful here. Often players just want to know that they have been heard. If you can prove to them that they are being heard, that will help a lot to build a good relationship between you and your player base. Explain your intentions and reasoning and why you are making changes, or why you aren't if enough players are asking for a change that you won't be making. Another aspect of managing the player base has to do with handling the community at large. This is in the area of facilitating player interaction, as well as encouraging positive interactions between the players. There is a good deal of this that is out of your control as a developer, as each individual player will decide how they want to treat other players, but there are ways to promote good interplayer relations. One of the subtler ways to promote good interplayer relations is to have your game naturally do it, congratulating players on victories and consoling them on their losses, perhaps with a better luck next time or the like. 
This can also be affected through the way the game handles introducing players to its intricacies. For instance, if a game does its utmost to teach the player how to fight effectively, providing tutorials, training regimens, and other goodies for the players to use when attempting to improve, it facilitates players helping each other improve their playability and understanding of the play environment. With various training implements at their disposal, it is that much easier for the players to help each other improve as they now have different activities that they can direct players towards to help up their game. Guilty Gear XR and its follow-up titles are a great example of doing this, as the game provides all sorts of tutorials, missions, and events that the player can go through to learn how to play the game, as well as practice and improve their execution of that play. It should be noted that sometimes the nature of a game's Narvazod eschews away from sportsmanship in favor of trash talk or other more aggressively themed player interactions, which may curtail certain aspects of welcoming people into the play environment. But this is where being clear about the intentions of your title as a developer is key. By establishing what kind of environment your game is all about, and how it's supposed to be taken, you better prepare your prospective players for what they are getting into, which helps their experience with the game overall. Clay Fighter is an example of a game that has a bit more of a snarky trash talk air to its presentation, combining a certain level of 90s adolescent humor with a surrealistic clay veneer. The game makes no apologies for its mocking, often brutal tone, and is very clear about what kind of game it is from the start. It promotes a certain type of player interaction that, in the right setting, can be fun. But the setting must be conveyed to the players so that they know exactly what they're getting into. Encouragement of good community ethics goes beyond what is presented in your game, however, as there are other ways to promote good sportsmanship within the community. This can be in the form of hosting tournaments and handling the players that participate in those tournaments with respect. This can lead to a natural sportsmanlike reaction from the players towards others, especially if the developers and tournament hosts lead by example. Beyond this, being involved in the various forums related to your title can be very useful. By doing your best to be helpful and responsive to your community while promoting and, if you own the forum, enforcing good player behavior, is a great way to help manage the feel of your game's community. It should be noted that you cannot completely control the player base at large, as the players will ultimately decide what they do with your game and how they do it. The best you can do as a developer is incentivize and reward good player sportsmanship and behavior, while being an example of it yourself. Finally, this probably won't affect most developers, but if your game develops a tournament scene and you're involved in running that scene, there are some things that are important to look for in commentators. The most important of these is the ability to make the game accessible to the viewing audience. This means things like explaining game-specific slang and jargon, helping the audience follow the action, as well as explaining strategies and things that the players are going to be paying specific attention to. It is a good idea to take a look at sports commentators, as they've had a long time to practice many of these skills. Another place to look are Magic the Gathering commentators, as Wizards of the Coast has worked hard to ensure their commentary team does a good job of explaining what is going on. Overall, you're looking for commentators who are able to present a fun atmosphere that works to promote good sportsmanship and a positive environment, and who are able to not only engage your existing audience, but also help make the game approachable to new audience members. And on that note, there are a number of things you can do as a developer to help with new player acquisition. The first thing to recognize is that acquiring new players is important. The obvious financial rewards aside, though not ignored, new players are important for keeping your game or franchise healthy and long-term sustainable. 
Old players will often quit due to a variety of factors, such as changing interests, fatigue with your game or franchise, a lack of time or funds, etc. As such, if you hope to maintain a competitive scene, you'll need fresh, new players entering it. Part of making your game a welcoming place is on your community, which is where fostering a good community as much as you can is really helpful. However, there are some things that you as a developer can specifically do with your game that can be extremely beneficial. One of the biggest is providing ways for the player to get comfortable with your game and its environment before they compete against actual players. AI doesn't judge them, but if battling the AI doesn't prepare them to play against other humans, then they don't have a good path to transition from battling AI opponents to competing against players. As such, it is very useful to have an AI you can update and tweak so that they can teach new and developing strategies. Another thing that you can teach here that you may not initially realize is good etiquette. As an example of this, in StarCraft II, when the AI detects it is in a losing position, it surrenders and displays GG in chat. Saying GG, short for good game, at the end of the game is considered good etiquette in the StarCraft community, and Blizzard intentionally put in the effort to have the AI do this. Another thing you can do that is easy to miss, but can help a great deal with making players feel comfortable with entering the broader competitive community, is to teach them the jargon that your game will inevitably develop. This language barrier can be a surprisingly large intimidation factor, as it can make a player feel like they don't, or can't, belong to the larger community when they don't know what they are saying. It's similar to going to a foreign country where you can't speak the language. Doing what you can to help with this can be of great benefit to helping new players make the leap from battling the AI to competing against other humans. All this isn't to say that old players are unimportant to the community that surrounds your game. In context to new players, they are actually extremely important as they can often be the ones that help teach them how to play through direct matches, online tutorials, match videos, or even posts on related forums and websites. If you can promote an open and encouraging mindset in your existing player base, while treating them with respect as well, it will make it that much easier to draw new players in, as the old legends show them the ropes. Now, it should be noted that not all competitive environments are completely devoted to competitive play. In fact, it can be relatively common for a game to contain both competitive and non-competitive elements within its design. One big example of this is the game Smash Brothers, which features a robust assortment of modes and tweakable knobs that allow it to lean into and away from competitive play at the player's discretion. As evidenced by the various splits that emerged in the Smash community during the history of the game, a meshed design that seeks to support competitive and non-competitive play can put a great deal of stress on the overall design of the game, and requires much forethought from the developer when it comes to how the various modes, events, and mechanics of the game are presented to the player base. It can also put a lot of stress on the player base, as divisions between players based on what they want out of your game can put your community into conflict with itself. More precisely, if your game design brings players with different motivations into contact with each other, you have to be careful that it does so in a way that doesn't cause conflict between groups of players. To do this requires understanding what sorts of motivations players have. We've identified four major motivations that can cause a split among players when it comes to player versus player PvP gameplay. 1. Players who only want to engage in player versus environment PvE or cooperative play and don't want to play any form of PvP. If your game has a sufficiently robust PvE experience, you will attract some number of these types of players. Forcing PvP on them will result in them having a very negative experience. 2. Players who want to dominate others. They play to win at all costs. 3. Players who want a challenge to overcome. 
They want to be able to test their skills, and they want an environment to do that in. 4. Players who want to experience awesome moments, oftentimes regardless of who benefits from those moments. They often enjoy collecting stories of crazy things that happen, and they go out of their way to try and create as many of those stories as they can. It is important to note that these motivations can blend. For example, players who want to dominate and want to challenge are often going to be your top players. They're the folks who win tournaments and stay at the top of competitive rankings. Players can also drift between groups depending upon other circumstances. For example, if I don't know an area in a Souls game, then I really don't want to engage in any PvP whatsoever but I don't mind it nearly as much if I do know the area. As previously mentioned, these motivations can easily run into conflicts with each other. For example, players who care about testing their skills in an environment that produces accurate results, and players who want to create and collect stories of awesome moments often don't get along very well because they generally have incompatible ideas of fun. This is the primary conflict in the Smash Brothers community. So, with the understanding that the player base in a meshed environment will likely have some innate conflict when it comes to the sorts of things that they derive enjoyment from, there are a few questions that you should ask yourself when attempting to design a title that will have said meshed environment. One is the question of how competitors are chosen when it comes to any particular instance of competition, i.e., how do your modes facilitate or dissuade player archetypes from interacting? Many fighting games approach this by providing ranked combat modes, free play modes, local play modes, and solo play modes for different players to engage in. The ranked modes tend to draw players that are seeking to challenge themselves or simply seeking victory, with the former usually overtaking the latter during the course of the game's lifespan. The anonymity afforded by online play can bring out the worst in victory seekers, as they do whatever they can to unlevel the playfield especially when ranks are involved, leading to exploitative tactics that can ruin the experience for other players. In this case, managing how matches are made is important. Your player matchmaking process can be greatly improved in its ability to match players with similar sought-after play experiences, as well as similar skill levels. Creating fight lobbies helps with this too, as players can keep track of who they like fighting against and seek out those challengers. For local play, the simplest thing is to have the modes call out what they are for, and to have the knobs to alter the nature of the play within those modes. This helps spur the players to talk about the kind of play experiences they want to have with their opponents, and lets them alter the play such that it facilitates an enjoyable experience for both players. One of the more interesting methods of managing which players are interacting with whom is a gating approach. In this case, the game provides a set of achievements or goals that the player must attain before entering into certain modes. An example of this appears in the Switch games Splatoon and Splatoon 2, where the player must reach level 10 before being able to participate in ranked matches. This makes it so that players don't have a quick way to jump into ranked matches without the requisite experience to enjoy them, i.e. ensuring that they know enough to reliably stand a chance. Being a team game, this requirement also helps ensure that teammates that you get paired up with have enough competency that they don't drag your team down. This also puts an effort barrier up that makes it less likely for more exploitative players seeking to win at all costs to join in the ranked play and skew the experience negatively. It bears mentioning that the solo play mode is useful as a place for players to gain certain desired experiences with the game and often is the reason that a game is considered to be a meshed experience. Pokemon and Dark Souls are both games with very robust single-player components that feature optional player interaction elements 
that are more competitive in nature. Dark Souls stretches the definition of optional, but we'll get to that in a bit. The next question you should ask yourself as a developer is how much interaction you intend to have for different play styles. It is also important to examine your game to see how easy it is for different playstyles to accidentally interact, that is, you didn't plan for it. By far, the most significant of these is the interaction between PvE and PvP environments. As mentioned, games like Pokemon and Dark Souls both feature PvE and PvP. With Pokemon, you'll only engage in PvP if you want to, but that isn't the case with Dark Souls, where PvP can be forced on you against your will. Another avenue of interaction is indirect. This can happen in a couple of forms. For example, changes made for one mode of play can affect things in the other mode. If an attack in a Pokemon game is changed, it changes it for all modes. A good example of this comes from Dark Souls, where changes to the power of spells were made at the behest of some players who were getting their experiences ruined by them in PvP. These changes resulted in the spells becoming much weaker, which damaged their viability in both PvP and PvE. There can be other forms of coupling as well. Guild Wars 1 provides us with an example of this. In the original release of Guild Wars 1 Prophecies, the high-end PvE zones, the Underworld and Fisher of Woe, could only be accessed if your region had the favor of the gods. This was obtained by winning in a PvP arena called the Hall of Heroes. If your region wasn't holding the Hall of Heroes, you couldn't enter either high-end PvE zone. These sorts of couplings can cause conflict between players who don't engage in one of the modes, as they get impacted by changes that aren't made to benefit them. While PvE and PvP interacting is a clear example of mixing different playstyles, you can also mix different types of PvP playstyles. Dark Souls can demonstrate this quite clearly, where you have some players that want to have a code of etiquette. They're interested in duels and nothing else, and those duels must be conducted in a certain way with certain requirements. Other players don't care about that and will use every tool available to them to win. Other players don't even want to engage in organized, as much as it can be called that, PvP and want to harass PvE players. Perhaps the most striking example of the sort of mixing of PvP playstyles, however, comes from Super Smash Bros. What makes this particular split so insidious is that the games have generally done a very poor job of segregating players with different desires and motivations, with different concepts of fun. This has led to quite a few conflicts over the years, and in particular because you often don't know what other players will want from a match until you sit down with them. Another question to ask about the design of your game is how much it facilitates house rules. This is the concept of players imposing rules upon the play that aren't necessarily part of the game's original functionality. This can involve making the changes they need to via various options within the game, as well as using self-imposed rules of conduct to engineer the situations that they want to compete or play in. One example of this appears in Dark Souls, where players, looking for a fair and balanced fight, will impose rules of what kinds of builds they are allowed to use. Things like restricting or banning healing items, setting a range of levels within which the players can compete, and deciding upon specific zones within which combat can ensue were among the many things that players would do to get the challenge that they sought. In this case, the game was not extremely conducive to allowing these house rules to happen, as building characters to spec took time, doing matchmaking for specific players was not easy, and there was no real way to enforce the zoning that players sought. Smash Brothers is another game that has a great deal of house rules associated with its competitive play, ranging from item selection to stage selection to even how players manage their stocks. The best example of this is the crew battle, wherein two teams of players go head-to-head -head and fight each other in a series of one-on-one -on -one matches where the first to lose all of their stocks loses. The player that won moves on to the next match, with however many stocks they had remaining from the previous one. 
In this case, the player with the stock deficit would have to keep self-destructing themselves at the start of the match until they were at the amount of stocks they were supposed to have left. Other than in this rare case, Smash Brothers facilitated a great deal of rule changes with the sheer amount of options it contained, with even the ability to decide what stages were available when a player chose the random select button. This versatility greatly facilitated the growth of Smash Brothers' competitive community, although, in some ways, it enabled the split within that community as well. Finally, it is very important to be sensitive to the needs of your entire audience. Seek to understand all segments, even, and perhaps especially, ones you didn't anticipate. Or, if that isn't entirely possible, at least try to find ways of mitigating bad player experiences. Remember also, if you have to sacrifice one group in favor of the other, you have to take into consideration the relative sizes of the groups. You can sometimes skew it based on the type of play your game is meant to encourage, but sacrificing the fun of the many for the fun of the few isn't the best way to go about things. I think the Smash Brothers development team suffered from failing somewhat at this. While I appreciate that Smash 4 has the 4 fun and 4 glory modes, there are a lot of things about the 4 glory mode that emphasizes a fundamental misunderstanding of the players it was made for. It looks like it was based on the stereotypes about those types of players, that they aren't playing to have fun, when in fact they are, and that they want it to be Final Destination no items. An actual examination of the community would reveal that they generally don't want Final Destination only, though they do want no items. It can be hard to empathize with players who are coming to your game for a different experience than the one you made it for, but they are a part of your audience. Respect them, learn about them, and, as much as you can, make it clear that it is their game too. So at the end of the day, when it comes to managing the competitive environment associated with your game, there are a lot of factors to keep track of, as the player base can be very unpredictable, and will almost always surprise you with what they find when they dig into your game. This said, it is very important to be clear about your intentions when you present your game to your audience, stating what it is you are looking to make when you embarked on the journey to build your game. However, it is also important to take note of the kind of game that your players discover and how close or far away from your original intentions it was. Moreover, you must pay attention to how your player base transforms your game to achieve the type of fun they desire. Finally, you must compare the competitive environment that you sought to create to the one the player base is currently operating in, and decide what changes to make that will better facilitate a fun experience for the players involved. Remember, you're creating the game for your audience, as much of your audience as you can. Also, seek to serve your actual audience, not who you expected your audience to be. Join us next time, and Redcoat finally gets to talk about Soul Calibur 2 to his heart's content. Until then, this is CN Tier, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.